you need to find a way to translate the computational insight into the language of chemistry or biology, which kind of means you need to know chemistry and biology and drug discovery in addition to knowing the AI. All right, everyone, I am here with Bharat Ramsander. Bharat is founder and CEO at Deep Forest Sciences. Bharat, welcome to the Twimmel AI podcast. Thank you for having me on, Sam. Excited to be here. It's great to have you on the show, and I'm looking forward to digging in and talking a little bit about your work on deep learning for molecular design. To get us started, why don't you share a little bit about your background and what kind of caught your interest about that field? Yeah, for sure. So a little bit of background about me. I did my PhD at Stanford a few years ago, worked with uh, Vijay Pandey's group at the time. So my you know training before then had been as a software engineer, pure math person. So I was really, when I started uh, at Stanford, I kept passing these posters in the hall that had all these crazy pictures of molecules on them outside Vijay's lab. So I kind of went in one day and was like, oh, let me just talk to these people and it ended up clicking. So we decided to work together. A lot of the work I did there was in applying, say, my previous background, uh, working with software engineering and mathematics to the problem of uh, molecular design and drug discovery. So I started an open source uh, framework called DeepChem that has grown since. I think we're now probably one of the most popular open source platforms for drug discovery out there. I also started a benchmark suite called MoleculeNet, which helped uh, establish standard benchmarks for designing new molecular algorithms that's been widely used in academia and in the industry. Since then, after leaving Stanford, I co-founded a startup in the crypto space. I worked on that for a couple of years, but then decided to come back to working on biotech and medicine discovery. So the last few years, I've been working with different biotech and pharma companies on getting AI into their drug discovery process. So that's kind of the part of my new company, Deep Forest Sciences. Awesome. Awesome. What do you see as some of the big challenges that the drug discovery companies are having as they try to incorporate AI into that process? It's a great question. I think there's a whole range of issues, like starting at the very basic. Oftentimes, IT setup is not enabled to handle this. You have to think about, all right, do we get up on cloud? Many companies are transitioning to cloud, so that part at least is starting to be taken care of. But it's not a core competency, I think, in many of these firms. You often see like external consultants who are running the IT. So it it's, can be an early situation. Other things, I would say, there's just, I think, things like pay scale misgaps between, um, you'll see very talented senior biologists getting paid less than a fairly junior developer would make at a tech company, which say it's a hard problem. So I think attracting talent, there's a good sound that you're working on what you could say are arguably more meaningful challenges, uh, trying to find medicine, but you also have to make that make career sense for people. So I think a lot of these firms are still struggling to hire and build out their top tier AI talent. And I think that this will eventually begin to find a medium ground. But for now, I have several friends who are all looking for basically the same type of candidate, and they're also looking as far as I know. So it's, it's definitely a challenge there, but university programs are starting to pick up the slack. I'd say other challenges, it's how do you mesh these systems in well with human scientists? So I would say the AI is not a replacement for an expert human team by any means, but you need to find ways to have the human teams and the scientific teams work together in a complementary fashion. Uh, this can be really hard, as I'm sure you've heard from your other data scientist uh, guess like it's a state communication problem you need to find a way to translate you know the computational insight into the language of chemistry or biology which kind of means you need to know chemistry and biology and drug discovery in addition to knowing the ai which makes us a bit of a uh, hard field to get into but i think it's worth it i think it's been a lot of fun 
At the highest level, the promise of AI for drug discovery is just that, that some AI will be able to spit out drugs for us that are effective at solving medical challenges. Tell us a little bit about, you know, at a lower level of granularity, like where is the innovation frontier now? And if all goes right in efforts like yours, you know, what's the the promise for AI in the near term in this field? It's a great question. And I would say divide this field into two parts. Uh, the first, I would say, is machine learning for chemistry. And the second is machine learning for biology. I think machine learning for chemistry has made a lot of strides. Like you see like a lot of top tier conferences like iClear recently announced they had a ML for drug discovery and molecules track. Neurips has had a standalone workshop for a few years. I think that there's a lot of open packages like DeepChem. There's DGL Life Sciences from Amazon and a few others that really have started to support this field. I would say there's still challenges in generating molecules effectively, but say predicting properties of molecules, say analogous to predicting properties of images, is not a solved task, but it's an increasingly straightforward task. The challenge, I think, is still working at the low data setting. So unlike other parts of the tech industry, you can't have human annotators create data. You need to have some type of experimental output actually coming from uh, either a trained lab tech or a robot that's been very properly configured. So we're figuring out how to get transfer learning working, how to get you know low data methods, meta learning uh, working, I think is the real frontier. Lots of cool papers, like people are doing things like contrastive learning, uh, looking at the 3D structure, you know, using transformers. There's a whole range of papers that are exploring this. But I'd say that's the frontier right now. The basics work, but how do we make this work in like practical settings where there's not much data? The second area of machine learning for biology, I think, is much more mysterious. Hmm. I would have said that there weren't really any successes until DeepMind uh, announced AlphaFold 2. So AlphaFold 2 is really, I think, made a dramatic difference in this field where you've taken what was a, I'd say, fundamental problem of biology, predicting the structure of proteins. And this has been open for about 50, 60 years now, and been able to push that into a place where you could argue it's even solved. I think this just really had a sea change in how scientists and biologists see AI methods, whereas before it was something that was kind of exotic and, well, that doesn't really work. Now it's like, oh, okay, they just whacked this problem out of the ballpark. We need to pay attention. Besides that one place, I would say that AI and bio is still very early stage. To give an example of the fundamental challenge, like take a disease like Alzheimer's. The What you hope the AI would tell you is that, okay, the root cause of Alzheimer's is X. So you just need to design a molecule that modulates X somehow. Then, bam, you'll cure Alzheimer's. We wish we knew that, but then we see all these failed clinical trials for Alzheimer's because that's an extraordinarily difficult problem. You're trying to untangle you know, the history of evolution itself in the human body. So it's going very deep to the heart of medicine, I would say, and that's beyond today's AI. I think the best we can hope is to create better tools that make our best doctors and biologists more capable of handling these problems. So I'd say ML for chemistry, much further along, closer to where, say, things like images are. ML for biology, fundamental science. I think it's a open field and just beginning to be explored. Got it. Got it. Tell us about the origins of DeepChem. Yeah, absolutely. So back during my PhD, I was fortunate enough to do an internship uh, with the Google Accelerated Sciences team at Google. So we used a early version of their internal AI system called Disbelief. This is a pre-TensorFlow system. 
And we built, I think, a really cool model. It explored, say, large-scale training on a bunch of data we gathered to do a multitask deep learning system. This worked pretty well, and I was really excited. We got a a paper out. We had it written up in the Google blog. A lot of people are excited. But as with all good things, the internship ended. I came back to grad school. I was like, oh, well, whoops, I don't have my core research discovery to work with. So at the time, Kiros and Theano just really started to come online. So hacked together a few scripts to try to replicate the original paper. I got most of the way and wanted to share it with some friends. We just put it up on I just put it up on GitHub. And from there, it's sort of grown organically. So we attracted a few talented early contributors. We made the licensing permissive, MIT, rather than a more restrictive license. So we had some early corporate contributors come in, really help out. A number of grad students put projects, papers into there. We're also, I think, fortunate enough to be able to participate in Google Summer of Code through the Open Chemistry Collaboration We've been participating in Google Summer of Code, I think, for three years now, had a number of excellent students. That program allows students to come work on your open source project? Yes, that's correct. And uh, Google will pay them for their time, which I think is just a tremendous advance. You see all these kids who couldn't otherwise like participating in open source. So I'd say one of the nice things we've grown is really a community of teaching and documentation. So we have about 30 tutorials really laying out the basics of the science. Also on the way, we ended up writing a book with O'Reilly, Deep Learning for the Life Sciences, which uh, introduces a lot of the techniques in this field and how to use deep chem with them. So I, I think we've tried to put a lot of effort into growing a friendly, collaborative, open community. And I think that's really drawn people to work with us. A lot of the you know, people who do AI in this industry, they often get, I think, their first you know, taste of AI in this field through deep chem. So I think that's something we want to do more of. So we continue working on it. We just had a new release come out last week. We had 29 contributors on this release. So we've got, a, I think, a vibrant open source community that's working to really build out better tools. And what are the specific problems that DeepChem solves for practitioners working in the field? So I think one of the big things that DeepChem does is we effectively serve as a model zoo slash repository. So we take a lot of these models that come out in the literature and academics do great work. They invent a new technique. They put it up on GitHub. It's pretty clean code, but you're not incentivized really to go further beyond that. That's sort of where we come in. We say, okay, well, we need unit tests. We need to stabilize this. We need to make sure that uh, this can be maintained. So we wire it into our CI system. We get tests put up, we get type checks, we get everything linted. And at the end, we have a stable implementation of the model, and we have an extensive CI that tests, you know, Windows, Mac, Linux. There's about 600, 700 unit tests, a lot of testing on uh, machine learning, how to uh, stabilize machine learning methods. So we have a robust production-grade implementation that can then be used by downstream industry and also academic practitioners. So we see ourselves as, you know, picking up from where... uh, academia often leaves off. We do have a number of students also interested in designing new models of their own. So we do have research collaborations with academics, but I think our mission really is serve as a high quality repository of good good models and techniques. Got it. And what are some of the most popular models today on DeepChem? I would say the most popular historically has been uh, the graph convolutional network. So we had, I think, one of the first quality implementations of a graph convolutional network for molecules. This was before PyTorch Geometric and DGL. In the last few years, we've increasingly shifted to using DGL and and PyTorch Geometric to underpin our graph convolutions. So we have an extensive collection still, but a lot of them are, say, wrappers or extensions around these other frameworks. 
More recently, I think we've been expanding into, uh, we have a number of new models, say, at the frontier in material science. People there are just really beginning to embrace the deep learning mindset. So some newer models there. I was just talking to a student this morning who's adding a graph convolutional variant for predicting material structure this morning. Another frontier, I think, is actually solving uh, partial differential equations. So the PDEs, as they're called, are just critical in many fields of engineering and physics. It lets you solve these complicated systems. So we had a very talented Google Summer of Code student this summer add in a first deep learning PDE solver. It's called the Physics Inspired Neural Network. It's still very alpha. I think the API needs a lot of work, but it's a great proof of concept. And the dream of this entire field is, can you solve these high dimensional PDEs? I was talking to some engineers at GM a while back, and it takes them, I think, 18 hours to be able to solve the fluid flow equations around like a car structure. Mm -hmm. And they can't really do iterative design. Whereas if you had a fast approximate solver, you could potentially try out these radical designs, you know, click a button, have the model give you approximate answer, you know, 30 seconds, and then just keep designing. When these tools mature, I think they'll enable these types of radical innovations, but that's, that's probably several years off. There's a lot of fundamental work. So we see our role as, you know, continuing to maintain the core, keep it stable for production use, but also grow out at the frontiers, adding new scientific models and areas. When describing DeepCam, you describe primarily this model repository, uh, but those models are built using a DeepCam library. Can you talk a little bit about the library and the, the capabilities that it enables and, and why folks use it as opposed to other lower level libraries? Yes, that's an excellent question. So the DeepCam library itself is, say, designed to be one level higher up than, say, the underlying tools like PyTorch or TensorFlow. So for PyTorch or TensorFlow, you often, say, don't know about scientific file formats. You don't know about how to featureize uh, scientific data sets in a meaningful fashion. Um, you know, molecular data sets come in a whole, well, the prominent open source package that loads these file formats is called Babel. That should give you some idea of the diversity of formats that just kind of uh, rest out. You need to be able to slurp in all these formats. You need to be able to transform them into, you know, either vectors or graphs that you can use in machine learning. Oftentimes, there are various scientific transformations you need to apply, maybe uh, types of normalization. There are metrics that you often use to measure these models that, again, are, require you to be scientifically aware rather than using an out-of-the-box metric. I think where we see our role as coming in is trying to provide the scientifically aware layer on top. So our goal really is not to try to uh, reinvent the wheel. If something's in PyTorch geometric or PyTorch or what have you, we just kind of use that very happily. And part of our extensive collection of tutorials is, you know, walking through how do you use DeepCam with X other library. But there are just cases where, you know, something doesn't make sense for the broader. And there's some what is relatively niche to the broader world way of processing molecules, but for us is really interesting. That goes in DeepCam. Um, is that's part of our core mission or uh, the same for a material. So it really is like, I think the, the dividing line is, is this a scientific AI tool? And second is, if there's already a high quality open source package and community that maintains this, can we just use them? And if the answer to both of these questions comes out, then we add it to DeepCam. Otherwise we say, hey, why not add a tutorial that teaches you how to use DeepCam with this other tool to be able to do this the right way? One of the interesting conversations we've been having on the podcast recently, uh, primarily in the context of reflections on the past year and different areas within mach machine learning is kind of this 
maturing of the field. For example, in natural language processing, there are so many models off the shelf that a practitioner can take without having to, you know, create a new architecture, for example. And I'm curious about that, the the state of, of the field with regard to molecular design. It sounds like by virtue of the fact that you are primarily offering a repository, there's a great opportunity for reuse. But I'm wondering if you can elaborate on kind of this innovation frontier or the extent to which new problems that people want to solve are solved best by kind of fundamentally pushing the machine learning or taking things off the shelf and, and implementing them and applying them to their data. How do you see that evolving now for DeepCam and the molecular design field? This is a great question and something we've been actively researching for a few years now. So we have this open source consortium within DeepCam, like a subgroup that works on a series of models called Converta. So we Converta is, as you might guess, a BERT variant. It is a type of transformer. We trained a model on a number of smile strings, which is, you know, the textual representation of a molecule. And you just kind of use a standard NLP style technique. So Converta 1 was intriguing, but not really performant. Didn't really match the standard methods out there. We just very recently at the Ellis Machine Learning for Molecules workshop in December put out Converta 2. Converta 2 is now... I would say comparable with the latest uh, graph convolutional methods, but it's a lot of work and it gets close to the same results. So I think we have a ways to go. So all the Converta models, we've actually put them up on the Hugging Face model hub. So you can download those. I think they've been used by actually a pretty large community of people. This is all in the DeepChem org within Hugging Face. So we do think this is an area where there's going to be major growth. So far, what I would say is that we are less mature than, say, for natural language processing. Things don't work out of the box. We hope that when we you know, knock on one, get Converta 3 out there, maybe that'll take one more step towards making this a general purpose technology. But as of now, I think it's a cool research direction. We spend a lot of time thinking about it. We have a very nice team with uh, kind of researchers who work with DeepChem and also uh, Reverie Labs and UC Berkeley and a couple other places who've been partnering with us. But for now, we hope to see the hugging face style off the shelf models, but we've not yet gotten that to work where we were able to recommend that. Uh, whereas the graph convolutional methods are always in this field, the random forest, you know, uh, just sometimes you pull it off, it just works great. We, I think we'll get there a few more years. Mm hmm. In addition to DeepCam, you've also worked on a molecule net, which is a data set and a benchmark suite around molecular design. Can you talk a little bit about that and its origins? Yep, for sure. So, you know, going back to when we started this uh, DeepCam project, we put kind of these methods out there, and there are a bunch of new methods starting to come online. And the question naturally was, you know, how do we compare? these methods against each other. So for a long time, I'd been inspired really by ImageNet. So I was at Stanford at the time, I kind of joined right as the ImageNet paper came out. And I could just see the transformative impact it had on image processing algorithms. So I'd had this vision of, you know, let's try to do something similar for molecules and DeepChem provided a platform. So I partnered with a kind of very talented other student, Michael. He and I put together the kind of core of MoleculeNet. So we implemented about say 15 algorithms in DeepChem that were prominent in the community at the time. We added about 15 data sets. We ran that matrix roughly of a lot of experiments right there. We burned up some of the clusters for a while. 
we try to put out, I think, quality uh, benchmarks and we had recommendations on how do you uh, do a train valid test split that's chemically aware. And I think it's seen a lot of uptake by the community. I'd say it's also, you know, it's been a few years, like four, four years at this point, I think, since we put out the paper. So starting to show its age a little bit. There's a couple of really cool projects. There's a therapeutic data commons now that MIT has just put out that uh, extends molecule that with a number of new data sets that they've gathered and curated. We are working to extend MoleculeNet ourselves. We have a successor project that's slowly winding its way out the door that, knock on wood, maybe this year uh, we'll get out the door for lucky. But we have integrated MoleculeNet from the earliest days into DeepChem. So uh, the way a lot of people get access to the data set, they do, you know, import DeepChem and the DeepChem.MoleculeNet.load X, where X is whatever data set. This is kind of modeled on the scikit-learn integrated data sets. So I, I think that uh, we continue to support this, we continue to add new data sets. We just added a couple months ago. Again, it's a long-term effort to try to build out a critical mass of data that can further the science here. Can you talk a little bit more about developing uh, what you described as a, a chemistry-aware validation process? So uh, this is a great question. So oftentimes in, well, at least in the earlier papers on machine learning, you do something like a random split of your data. And this is mostly fine when you're building kind of uh, toy models, but the downside is in the real world, this often doesn't generalize. To use an example from self-driving car world, it's really the long tail of a squadron of geese fly across the road. Was that in the training data? Probably not. But you want to test really on the crazy examples. It's something similar in molecules. You're most interested in uh, predicting the structure of molecules that you haven't seen. So what you want to do is when doing train valid tests, you often want to do a splitting of the data where the validation and test sets are drawn from chemical scaffolds, as the term is, that are far away from the scaffolds that you saw in training. And this gives you a better estimation of the true generalizability of the model. Uh, so one of the things we did in Molecule, and it's probably one of the most used parts of DeepChem, is we introduced something called a scaffold splitter. This wrapped an existing algorithm by Bemis and Mirko that was in the RDKit library, put it in a nice usable format for people. And so I think this is a one of our, you know, little bit, a little part of the project, but maybe one of the most used pieces actually. Mm -hmm. So there was an existing library that allowed you to compare the scaffolds for different molecules, and you were able to use that as part of creating test train splits? I think I would definitely give a shout out to RDKin, which I think is uh, probably the foundational open project in uh, chemoinformatics. So they kind of established the machinery that uh, made it possible for us to build on them. Uh, they're probably one of the most important scientific projects that you may or may not have heard of. So they're a really cool project. I recommend checking them out. Nice, nice. Yeah, as Deep learning is maturing. A few years ago, a lot of scientific papers were, hey, I heard about this machine learning thing. I'm going to throw it at my problem and see what happens. The field has been maturing quite a bit. And we've got libraries like yours that uh, are able to, to aid researchers and practitioners. Uh, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about broadly how you see machine learning in the, the traditional sciences and what you see the future is there? How does it evolve? And that's a great question. I would say that probably the biggest shift is going to be that most scientists will probably want to do some machine learning coursework as part of their core training. So I think as these tools become more and more established, it'll be just a core part of the scientific toolkit that new scientists have to learn. I'd say Increasingly, what I see now is that 
there's a lot more creativity in terms of like, okay, we've got the basics down. So the paper isn't just, you know, take off the shelf thing and apply it here and see what happens, which is a lot of fun, I think. You could uh, sometimes get some real surprises that way. But now, you know the basics. People have written about it. So what do you do that's creative? So I think at times you actually see these very innovative applications. I would say that one of the areas I'm most interested in right now as a researcher is the application of deep learning to solving partial differential equations. And these are, you know, foundational mathematical tools, I think, from the 1800s or even earlier, you could argue. And But the challenge has been we've always only really been able to solve them in relatively restricted cases. Uh, like in, in the, I believe, 70s, uh, there are these class of algorithms called finite element methods that this is what really underpins, I think, a lot of CAD and other modeling tools that really pushed the field forward. But we might now be seeing the second revolution where, through these deep learning methods. And the big shift, I think, is that these earlier classes of techniques, you often had to put down what's called a mesh. Uh, so let's say you have a complicated car. You need to basically, you know, drop grid points on your car in your computer model. So you can like model, you know, the airflow at that point. Whereas with the deep net, you can now do what's called a mesh-free method. You can just say, oh, well, I'm not going to worry about that. I'll just have my deep net approximate it all. Give me your data. Now, there's still a lot of caveats here. I think this is a new technique. But I, I think that it's one of the more exciting things. And it's because you have to really understand the math and the physics of these systems in addition to the deep learning. That's where I think you begin to see real scientific creativity. I think there's like a long tail of like really cool innovations, but you, it requires people who understand both sides. You know, it's not enough to just be a you know, numerical analyst or a machine learning person or a car designer. You kind of have to have someone uh, in the room who does all, each of these things or all of these things. So your company, Deep Forest Sciences, started out as a vehicle for doing some consulting with the drug discovery companies, but you're moving in the direction of productization. Can you talk a little bit more about your vision for the company and your offerings? Yeah, for sure. So basically, a few years ago, I, I started almost by happenstance uh, consulting for a few friends who uh, were working. That's how it always starts. <laughs> I was like, well, you, there's all these open tools. Do you, you really need me to come in and help you? And they're like, yes. And I was like, oh, okay, sure, why not? Uh-huh. Uh, I just left my previous company. And then over time, I think yeah, it's grown into a realization. There are these systematic challenges, I think, in applying AI to these problems. One of the biggest challenges, I think, is that in drug discovery at the end of the day, like you as a company are responsible for putting out a medicine. That's what your stockholders are there for. That's what the market rewards or punishes you for. So the amount of time you can afford as an organization to really put into building world-quality software, world-class software, is limited. And it should be, because that's not what your market is. So I think there's a niche to really build out quality AI software and partner with companies and let them do what they are the best at, which is trying to find new medicine and you know work with us to help solve the hard AI problems we have. So we have built a system that uh, we call internally Chiron. Uh, it builds on on DeepChem, and you know we continue to support and uh, help grow the DeepChem community. But we've also, I think, made some extensions to it that I think make it uh, more useful for our partners. And we're able to take this technology and work with a drug discovery company who's, say, got a therapeutic hypothesis they're really passionate about. Um, but maybe they don't really have the expertise in-house to really throw the kitchen sink at it and figure out what all these AI techniques can do. There's just a dizzying area of things you can do these days, especially as the field has grown. 
that's where we come in. Like we have kind of the extensive capabilities of DeepChem. We have Chiron built on top of that. We've worked with many different companies at this point. And we bring, bring that expertise so you can focus on the biology, the hard problems of human medicine discovery, and we can focus on the AI and we can help you get where you need to be. So that's the vision of the company in a nutshell. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I wish you the best of luck with the company and thanks so much for taking the time to share a little bit about what you've been up to. Anytime. It was my pleasure and I had a lot of fun. Thanks so much, Bharat. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.